0: Welcome to Securing America with me, Frank Affney, the program that's a kind of owner's manual for protecting the country we love against all enemies, foreign and domestic, to the glory of God and his kingdom. We have a problem, Houston, and that is that the President of the United States has once again indicated that he's determined to obtain a ceasefire that would result in Israel stopping for some period of time, uh, he suggested the month of Ramadan, which is uh, coming up on starting on March the 10th, uh, to um, allow humanitarian assistance to flow into Gaza and otherwise set the stage for um, possibly a, an open-ended cessation of hostilities. At least that's what Joe Biden hopes, and he most especially hopes it on this day uh, when the people of Michigan are voting in a Democratic primary, uh, and some considerable number of them are uh, rather irritated with him. Those would be pro-Hamas, Arabs, Muslims, and uh, progressives of various other stripes who are being encouraged not to vote for Biden in the course of this primary. All of this is to say... We have a situation that is, I believe, hugely detrimental, not just to the people, the friends, our allies in Israel, but also to vital American interests as well. And we've asked our duty expert on all of these matters, the great Carolyn Glick, a senior fellow of our Center for Security Policy, the star of the Carolyn Glick Show, a columnist for the Jewish Uh, News Syndicate and so much more, the author of The Israeli Solution most recently, to come aboard to talk with us a little bit about such a ceasefire. Um, It may not actually be in the offing despite Joe Biden's uh, representations, but is it a good idea? Carolyn, it's so good to have you back. Welcome and uh, let me just put the question to you directly. Is a ceasefire under these circumstances actually a good idea? Well, for Israel as well as for the United States, in your view.
1: Uh, look, you know, there's absolutely no question that the people who are keenest to get our hostages out are the Israeli people. And the Israeli military has been expending great efforts to 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 release them. And every time that we find hostages, we uh carry out missions to to uh rescue them. And we we had a hostages for terrorists plus ceasefire deal that we put into effect in uh, November, and were able to get out 110 women and children uh, during the course of a 10-day ceasefire. But here what we're talking about is something else. Um, We're talking about a prolonged ceasefire that Biden openly states he wants to lead to a cessation of violence that would leave Hamas in charge of the Gaza Strip, that would leave Hamas intact, at least in some of its battalion sizes, and capable of carrying out guerrilla operations throughout Gaza, uh, as well as uh, maintain its power over the people of Gaza because from the outset, uh, since the United States has been demanding humanitarian aid, <laughs> demanding, excuse me, that Israel allow humanitarian aid to enter Gaza, the Hamas uh, has managed to uh, take take control of uh, 60 to 70 percent of all the truckloads of supplies. So the United States has been requiring Israel to resupply Hamas. So I think You know, Israel, of course, we want to get our hostages released, but we also understand that our survival is contingent on eradicating Hamas. And the ceasefire deal that the United States is proposing uh, would allow Hamas to survive, which means that it would allow Hamas to prevail in this conflict, which just invites massive uh, future aggression, not only from Hamas and Gaza, but from their fellow Palestinians and Judea and Samaria and from Hezbollah and, of course, from the leader of it all, Iran. So from Israel's perspective, the terms of this ceasefire are simply unacceptable.
0: Carolyn, I want to come back to Israeli really popular sentiment in a moment, but uh, just staying with this issue. Um, in a terrific I guess, monologue uh, that you have in your in-focus feature at the Carolyn Glick Show. Uh, You recently talked about evidence that um, this is actually a trap. Uh, The idea of a temporary ceasefire, whether it's for a couple of days or a month uh, or more, is exactly purposed to achieve the results you just described. Um, Talk a little bit about the provenance of, the evidence that you've got and why this makes even more um, unacceptable what Israel's being pressed to do
1: I mean it's it's not you don't have to search very far to understand that this is what is at play because president biden himself has said it repeatedly that he wants this uh, ceasefire that's supposed to take effect during the course of a uh, hostages for for terrorists uh, swap with hamas uh, to uh, lead to a total cessation of of uh, of war. And that requires Israel to end its offensive operations because that's what Hamas is demanding. Hamas wants the war to end because they want to survive. And the longer it goes on, the smaller its chances of surviving as both a regime and as a military structure, as a terrorist organization, diminish. So there, the demand for a ceasefire now is a demand is Hamas's demand. They want to get off more or less scot-free for what they did to Israel on October 7th. And the United States, by seeking to achieve that aim, by exploiting Israel's uh, ardent desire to get our hostages free, um, the United States is acting as Hamas's agent in these talks. So what you have are negotiations that are being held uh, around a, around a table mediated by the CIA director, William Burns, and attended by Qatar's prime minister, by Egypt's intelligence chief, and by uh, the director of Mossad, Israel's Mossad uh, espionage uh, organization. And so you have three representatives of Hamas sitting on uh, one side of the table, essentially. The the United States, Qatar, which is Hamas's uh, principal state sponsor next to Iran, and Egypt, which doesn't really uh, support Hamas, but it certainly uh, is more tending in this particular conflict towards Hamas, largely to placate the United States, which supports Hamas. And all of them are against Israel, and all of them are pushing Israel to accept Hamas's ceasefire demands and pushing Israel very hard not to carry out a military operation in Rafah, which is the border town of Gaza bordering Egypt, uh, because they know that Israel will win if we carry out this battle and we and we conquer Rafah and we take away Hamas's last bastion of power, where they have six, I think, four to six battalions are still there, and uh, their their commanders are apparently are are suspected of being there as well.
0: I think the specific um, reference yeah. I was thinking of, Carolyn, was a, uh, a comment by an Egyptian, I believe anonymous, but nonetheless seemingly an official, involved in these talks um, to a Qatari, uh publication, indicating that this was in fact a trap, and that the Biden administration had made it very clear to uh, the parties that, uh, at least the uh, the non-Israeli parties, that if Israel does agree to the ceasefire, this protracted ceasefire, um, the United States is not going to support it going back to war. And, and just a quick word on that, Carolyn, um, the extent to which the leverage that the United States now has and is using, not a full cutoff of arms resupply, but nonetheless restricting it, uh, would that be the way in which they would enforce uh, you know, such a permanent uh, cessation of hostilities on the Israelis. Do you think
1: that? Well, there are two things. I mean, first of all, I just want to add to the mix, just just so your your viewers know, um, the Lebanese media Al Watan, which is a newspaper that's not controlled by Hezbollah in Lebanon, although everything there is essentially controlled by Hezbollah, reported today that um, I think it was President Biden, but if not, it was a senior administration official. Uh, transmitted a message to Hezbollah through um, the Lebanese prime minister, Al-Makati, who is controlled by Hezbollah, just like everybody in in Lebanon is controlled by Hezbollah. But the Americans told Hezbollah in this message that they were not going to allow Israel to uh, wage a war against Hezbollah in Lebanon. And they also said that uh, in the report that um, the United States would force Israel to accept a ceasefire in Lebanon uh, at, at the time when a ceasefire goes to a, in, into effect in Gaza, which is, of course, Caroline, countermanding Carolyn, I, I beg your pardon. On every I,
0: I have to interrupt. I went too long. We'll be right back with more with the great Carolyn Glick right after this. This is Frank Afney with the Secure Freedom Minute. What's up with college students embracing socialism, anti-Americanism, and most recently pro-Hamas sentiment? Consider queers for Palestine, supporting Muslims murderously intolerant of homosexuals. The brilliant social scientist Stella Morabito argues that American youth support for jihadists expressed on our campuses is a function of conditioning. She says, quote, most students you see at such chant fests have been groomed to believe they must adopt certain beliefs and behaviors to be socially accepted. This is key to understanding the shift in attitude towards terrorists, unquote. Prime movers behind such toxic grooming are the Muslim Brotherhood, its Muslim Students Association, and Students for Justice in Palestine. When amplified and weaponized by the Chinese Communist Party's addictive TikTok, you have a red-green axis that is subversively conditioning generations of our countrymen, posing a serious threat to not only Israel but this country and Judeo-Christian civilization more generally. This is Frank Afton. Welcome back, and my apologies to uh, both you and to Carolyn for uh, interrupting her train of thought as we had just run out of time. I'm so caught up in the narrative, Carolyn, of uh, what is going on here. Uh, Let let me just say, I I personally don't trust William Burns, the chief negotiator, the CIA director, um, as far as I could throw him, which isn't very far. And the idea that uh, he is involved in this... um, trap being set for Israel, uh, and as you say, uh, it's compounded by a trap being set for it with respect to Hezbollah as well, uh, is not altogether surprising, but nonetheless shocking. Um, Did you want to finish a point that I interrupted there?
1: Well, I was just saying that the United States is uh, trying to curtail Israel's operations on, on both the northern front with Hezbollah, which has been massively shelling Israel over the past uh, four months and it's been uh, it's been escalating its attacks over the past three weeks and we had you know 35 missiles shot into northern Israel last I think yesterday we had one missile that just narrowly missed a bus full of school children two days ago, I think it was. So this is something that is escalating very rapidly, Hezbollah. Uh, shot down a drone with a surface-to-air missile yesterday, an Israeli drone. So you know the situation there is very, very bad, and the United States wants to keep that situation bad. And so what we're really seeing here is a full-on American push to force Israel not to win. And the one last point about it: it's not just that they're slow-walking missile, uh, missiles, munitions, including tank shells, artillery shells, and air force ordnance. It's also um that they're threatening to go to the UN Security Council and force a ceasefire through the Security Council to try to compel Israel not to fight any longer so that is almost a declaration of war against Israel saying we're going to use our position at the UN Security Council to ensure Hamas's survival and to ensure that the uh, civilian communities in northern uh, Israel that border Gaza that border Lebanon and are afflicted by a constant threat of a ground invasion by Hezbollah terrorists into their communities, so the threat of being overrun and seeing something along the lines of what we experienced on October 7th, but 10 times uh, the dimensions of power, because that's, that's the level of force that Hezbollah is able to bring to bear, um, then what we're seeing is the most hostile American uh, uh, administration in history uh it it really is what you would expect from an obama uh third term in the sense that it's following the anti-israel trajectory of obama's terms in office but it's now way ahead of the game because the democratic party has become so much more uh hostile towards israel in in the uh in the in the seven years that have passed since he left office so it's it's a very it's a very troubling situation that we're facing right now with the administration
0: Yeah, it is indeed. And uh, as an old Scoop Jackson Democrat myself, I can tell you that uh, uh, nobody, I think, loved the Israeli people and their state more than Scoop did. And I believe he is spinning at a very high RPM in his grave at what's happening to his beloved Democratic Party. Um, I want to just ask you about one other piece of this, Carolyn, that uh, you brought out in this In Focus uh, commentary of yours. Uh, at the Carolyn Glick uh, I believe it is. is that well, right? you
1: can go to the Carolyn Glick Show on YouTube or on any podcast. get YouTube. Okay, it.
0: and also you can follow Carolyn Glick at carolynglick.com. Uh, right. But you made the point, Carolyn, that not only uh, is this whole uh, ceasefire uh, exercise predicated on the idea that uh, not only will some hostages be released, of course, but in exchange for those hostages, perhaps on a 1 to 100, or I think you even said 200 ratio. Right,
1: they would now they're talking be, about the uh, would be less, rep- 1 to 10.
0: Well, Whatever the number is, obliged to release convicted terrorists, including some associated with the October 7th attacks. Uh, and you made a very compelling point that I just think we can't emphasize strongly enough. Where would they go?
1: Right. So the Palestinian demand is that they go back to their homes, mainly in Judea and Samaria. And so what we're talking about are hardened terrorists who were convicted of terrorist offenses, including murder, uh, that would be re-entering their villages and cities in Judea and Samaria, a stone's throw from central Israel, and of course from the Israeli communities in Judea and Samaria, and put everybody at risk. I mean, because what we're seeing now is that since October 7th, there has been a massive uptick in Palestinian terrorism in Judea and Samaria. The the Biden administration tries to hide it, and then they slander the Jews and say that we're committing violence against the Palestinians in Judea and Samaria, and it's a total fabrication. But what we are seeing is a tenfold escalation over the previous year of uh, Palestinian attacks against Israelis. We're talking about, you know, two dozen stoning attacks. We're talking about a couple dozen a a day, and then Molotov cocktail and shooting attacks, uh, multiple attacks every week. So you're getting an average of over ten uh, terrorist attacks being carried out in Judea and Samaria every single day, yeah. and, and not um, not not least you from these so-called. Of terrorists into this into this area, what you're doing is you're ensuring that you it's just all going to explode. And, you know, we're going to be facing uh, just a tsunami of terrorism from from the West Bank, from Judea and Samaria.
0: Right. I, I'm sorry for trying to interrupt you there, but uh, okay. Inamar it, Marcus was on the show recently and was talking about the evidence that his outfit, uh, Palestinian Media Watch, has been accumulating, that it's not just you know, the the uh, odd jihadi that is engaged in this, or even larger elements in the community. It is also Fatah, the arm of the so-called uh, Partner for Peace Palestinian Authority, and the security forces that the United States has been training and equipping and otherwise enabling uh, to be a very, very dangerous force uh, indeed, and, and Carolyn, this brings me to the last point that I wanted to make sure we covered a little bit at least, uh, that is uh, the government of uh, the United States, and top of everything else we've talked about, is actively seeking to overthrow Benjamin Netanyahu's uh, elected government, right. professions of uh, their commitment to democracy, notwithstanding professions of the president's own stated commitment to Israel, to the bitter end. They're trying to overthrow him, and partly they justified on the grounds that somehow he's the problem. Talk about this poll that you uh, discussed at length recently, I think in another of your In Focus commentaries, uh, and just kind of the, the key elements of it. We can't obviously go through all of it, but um, this clear indication that Bibi is representing the people of Israel, the vast majority of them, not some you know, lone wolf who has to be removed.
1: Now, the Biden administration has, uh, President Biden did it again yesterday. He said that this is the most conservative government Israel has ever seen, and it's off the rails, et cetera, et cetera. Well, it's totally not off the rails. It may be conservative, but that's so are the Israeli people who, who elected it. And moreover, if, uh, uh, the, the opinion polls that are coming out in Israel show that all of the government's positions are shared in most cases, by three quarters of Israelis or more. So we're talking about things like, do we have to go into Rafa? What I was talking about before, the southern, uh, uh, southernmost uh, territory or city in uh, Gaza that borders Egypt. 73% of Israelis say yes. Not only do they say yes, they say yes, even if that requires us to get into an open fight with the United States and Egypt. So at all costs, no matter what, we have to do it. And, you know, are we willing to go to a cessation of the war in order to get the rescue of the the release of the hostages? You have 84 percent of Israelis saying no. And as to Netanyahu, you know, if you put him head-to-head with his with his main rivals, with uh, Benny Gantz, Netanyahu is 13 points ahead of him in head-to-head contests, 47 percent, I think, to 34 percent. And if you put him in a head-to-head match against the head of the opposition, Yair Lapid, who's very close with the administration— Netanyahu is beating him by over 20 points at 49 to 28. So you're talking about something that's just ridiculous on the face. The public stands behind the, be, behind Netanyahu. 60% of Israelis say they have faith in his war leadership, which is the same level of support that they give to the chief of staff of the Israeli army and to, and to Benny Gantz and to all the other architects. So this is just Nathan speaks for the mainstream of Israeli And we society. need to stand
0: with him is the bottom line. Carolyn Glick, thank you. Come back to us soon with updates. God bless you, my dear. Be right back. Stay tuned.
2: Night after night in cities across the country, black-garbed assailants clash with police in the streets, smash windows, and throw Molotov cocktails in an effort to destroy police stations, federal courthouses, and local businesses, all in the name of anti-fascism. Most Americans are now sadly all too aware of the movement known as Antifa. But where did they come from? What do they want? And how do we stop their campaign of violent mayhem? The Center for Security Policy Press is proud to present Unmasking Antifa, Five Perspectives on a Growing Threat. This new book looks at the history, ideology, organization, finances, and strategy of Antifa and provides an in-depth analysis for law enforcement officers, policymakers, and the general public. From street fighting tactics of the Black Bloc to fundraising by prominent left-wing foundations, Unmasking Antifa is the go-to guide to understand this elusive and dangerous threat. Get your copy of Unmasking Antifa, 5 Perspectives on a Growing Threat at Amazon.com.
0: We're back, and it's always a delight to be able to say that Dave Walsh is in the house. He is one of our most, well, revered resources, especially on the topics that fall within his area of special expertise, and that would be energy. Uh, Dave has served as a senior executive in the energy sector, notably as the president of Mitsubishi Power. Uh, He's these days a principal in the Dakota Group, and um, you see him on War Room, you see him here, and... Uh, most other places that matter. We're delighted to have him always. Welcome back, sir. Good to visit with you. Good to be with you, Frank. Good morning. Good morning. You sent me uh, earlier today uh, an article out of the Epic Times that I just have to say was shocking and would be, well, really unbelievable if it didn't deal with this administration, the Biden administration, and its uh, pursuit of its so-called climate change agenda without any regard for the cost to the country or even the environment that it professes to be so concerned about. Um, I want to introduce um, one of the principal players in all of this, uh, a woman by the name of Deb Halland, who was previously a an unknown congressperson, Um, now is uh, the Secretary of the Interior, Uh, a Native American is one of her um, attributes. Uh, She is also regarded by our friend Trevor Loudon as a pretty much avowed communist. And he'd been warning for some time about uh, the kind of agendas that she might be pursuing. Dave, tell us about the latest of her agendas and uh, the extraordinary, uh, well, ominous quality of it, really.
3: Well, you know, the Biden administration, from its inauguration, announced an all-of-government approach on net-zero decarbonization, CO2 abatement, that every agency in the federal government would have a role to play as a major initiative. Every agency, the SEC, the Department of Labor, all of them, not just the EPA and the DOE. The DOE is exactly where they should um, uh, reside, but no— The Interior Department has now its separate agenda to look to um, act out on Biden's commitment that 25 gigawatts of electricity would be uh, installed on federal lands during his administration by 2025. So this is an idea that uh, Holland, Deb Holland, Interior has put forward for study, that they've got up to 55 million acres they could uh, second in about seven states for that purpose, that's plan A. <clears throat> plan B, more moderate plan, is 11 million, 11 million acres to be devoted to solar and wind development to achieve the administration target of 25 gigawatts on, on federal lands of renewables. Now, just to give you an idea, I mean, the cost of this, 11, 55 million acres of solar panels would be a cost of about $10 trillion, plus another several trillion for the long-distance transmission necessary to make a quantity of part-time again. This electricity now would all be in the same concentrated, four point eight to five-hour period during the day, when the sun shines, when the snow is not falling, when the clouds are not out. You'd have to have massive uh, interstate transmission built out, probably another two trillion, to have some capability to use all of this in that skinny window of time when it's there, when the sun's shining. I mean, how absurd this is! Uh, Eleven million acres would be about uh, two trillion dollars of solar panels. I mean, by 2025-26, guess where they're all going to come from? China. China produces 87% of the thin-film PV panels in the world, so they would certainly be the supplier. So as we worry about Dev, Deb Holland's orientation politically to possibly being communist, um, it makes perfect sense consistent with what the source of these would be.
0: Indeed. So a lot of things to tease out here. Um, obviously, the, the amount of land that would be implicated in this, even if it's the, the lower amount, is staggering. I understand 16 million acres is roughly the size of Texas. Yeah. Um, and, and to exclusively dedicate all of that land, obviously it won't be all of Texas, it'll be spread out all over the country, uh, most of the Western part of the country, I guess. Dave, but one of the things that I've been told is once you dedicate any parcel of land to solar farm use, uh, it's not good for anything else, uh, right. and not only not good for it at the moment, but probably not good for it ever. Um, walk us through the environmental implications of that.
3: Well, you've got total, essentially total coverage of the land by panels, which removes the undergrowth rather rapidly for lack of sunshine that's being absorbed into the panels. So you lose the, um, the, the green matter, the, the alfalfa possibility, soy possibility, anything of use for agri- ag product underneath those for not just the time the panels are up, but for many years afterward where that land becomes effective desert because of the lack of sunlight and the lack of growth, the lack of roots, the lack of seed left on that land for regrowth of green material can be 10 to 15 years plus post the panels ever being removed. So this is a—it's a disaster. I've, I've got a big uh, speech on uh, Friday here before a Florida University of Florida meeting um, on this topic. Just for example, uh, we're we're hard at this in Florida. Going through some calculations. Just an example: a thousand megawatt gas plant, combined cycle plant, takes about sixty acres. The same equivalent electrification of solar, thousand megawatts, takes thirty thousand two hundred acres. Wind, two hundred thirty thousand four hundred acres. Now, wind's not as, as abusive of land because you can build, or a farm, arable farming can occur under wind towers, but not under solar panels. So you're talking like 500 times the land use of a conventional combined cycle power plant that, by the way, generates power all the time, where the solar still gives you only the, the five hours a day, and in a part of the country we're talking about, probably about 4.8, substantially north, and where there's a lot of snowfall, and during those periods you don't have any use of the panels, during cloud cover, no use of the panels, of course tonight from 4 p.m. to 9 in the morning nothing so it's a
0: well, let me ask you about one other piece of this uh, that was pointed out to me about um uh people who uh, y- you mentioned that the land is essentially turned into a desert um, but i understand that some of these farms have actually been put in the desert uh because it was not going to take any arable land out of circulation but apparently sand covering the or dust from the sand covering the panels is also a problem uh and i would imagine that's true in these other areas as well is it not i I mean the whole thing is it seems um doomed to fail in terms of providing the kind of power that we need which is continuous reliable power uh that that doesn't you know, despoil the country, especially 55 million acres of it, possibly? I mean, this is nuts, is it not?
3: It's completely nuts. If you get into the relative cost because of uh, sand damage, um, hailstorm damage, high wind damage on solar panels, the projected life of these is about 20 years. That's the first problem. Combined cycle plant, 40 to 60 years. So the real, the the five times higher cost profile, if you take into account the lifespan, is really about 10 times more costly because you need to replace them all in 20 years. But more so, the recent studies, we've got so many of these installed now, there's a lot more knowledge about what goes on with them. I mean, here in the southeast, hailstorms alone and even bird defecation from high altitude can cause these to crack, if you will, bust up and, you know, life's maybe 11 to 12 years so with that in mind, the capital cost is you know up to 10 times the cost of conven- conventional combined cycle gas. If you compound this with storage, battery storage, to actually back this up for some meaningful time, that's another one and a half times more cost. So to this point, if you spend a, a $2 trillion on a 11 million acres, you're going to spend another $4.5 on battery storage to really make the dream come true that this could support all day long, and enormous land usage, and covered with batteries.
0: And the batteries, like the panels, are likely to come from our mortal enemy, the Chinese Communist Party, right? Right
3: now, that's the only place they can come from. Lithium ion, on a process basis, to get here within, within five years, they're talking here within three, that's the only place they can come from.
0: All right, so Dave Walsh, I understand that the uh, proposed strategy that they're laying out here is going to be subject to public comment between now and April 18th. Um, in addition to that, uh, is there any recourse uh, to keep this from happening to us? I mean, comments are great, but uh, does Congress have a role, for example?
3: Well, if, if the land, uh, if the financial methodology used to execute in this is to sell this land to developers, absolutely to provide large-scale acreage um, uh, transfer of rights to use this land to people like Nextera, who would happily build this out with 30% federal subsidies, Um, congressional approval likely needed for a new version of leases. You know, we have offshore oil leases. This would transfer to onshore federal land leases for energy. Uh, so I think unlikely that the federal government is going to now come up with its own budget of two-tray into ten-tray and to build this out. Uh, therefore, developers would have to get involved. Therefore, in those two scenarios I mentioned, Congress would have to be involved in approving. So I think that's going to be a, a, a roadblock to this going on, hopefully.
0: Well, we certainly need to make sure it is, needless to say. Uh, and, Dave, uh, to the extent that the uh, public sentiment has any bearing on all of this? Uh, are you aware of any organized effort that is being mounted to uh, translate these kinds of uh, comments that presumably would be substantially negative um, into, uh, well, you know, pressure on Congress to do the right thing?
3: Well, the biggest groups right now locked into this are locked onto it are conservation groups, our traditional, uh, you know, nature conservancy groups that really do care about nature. Because, again, you know, you've got this conundrum here that, you know, the CO2 abatement from this, you're trading off green area that is a carbon sink for less CO2 from gas-fired plants in neutrality to begin with. So really the, the nature thing is knowing that the land is now abused this way forever.
0: You know, I want to see these conservation groups step up. I think at the moment they're in favor of this, as best I can tell. We're going to see what we can do to raise some hell about it. Thank you so much, Dave Walsh, for your time and energies in every sense of the word. God bless you. you. We'll be back with more right after this. This is Frank Affney with the Secure Freedom Minute. What's up with college students embracing socialism, anti-Americanism, and most recently pro-Hamas sentiment? Consider queers for Palestine, supporting Muslims murderously intolerant of homosexuals. The brilliant social scientist Stella Morabito argues that American youth support for jihadists expressed on our campuses is a function of conditioning. She says, quote, most students you see at such chant fests have been groomed to believe they must adopt certain beliefs and behaviors to be socially accepted. This is key to understanding the shift in attitude towards terrorists, unquote. Prime movers behind such toxic grooming are the Muslim Brotherhood, its Muslim Students Association, and Students for Justice in Palestine. When amplified and weaponized by the Chinese Communist Party's addictive TikTok, you have a red-green axis that is subversively conditioning generations of our countrymen, posing a serious threat to not only Israel but this country, and Judeo-Christian civilization more generally. This is Frank Afton. Welcome back. We're visiting with many of the most interesting people that we've come across here at the Conservative Political Action Conference 2024. It's a privilege to be able to bring them to you in person with many, many individuals, some of whom I've met before and worked with a little bit, uh, like our next guest, some of them not. Uh, That next guest is Randy Landrenault. He is the president of U.S. Investor... Inventor. U.S. Inventor. He was one of the driving forces behind an incredibly formidable film. Our colleague and friend Jenny Beth Martin of Two Party Patriots was very much a driving force behind it as well. It's called Innovation Race. And it talks about what has been done to take down one of the most brilliant institutions of all those created by the founders of this country, namely the U.S patent system, and we're going to talk with Randy a little bit about why it was so important and what has been done to it, and what he's trying to do to get it back. Randy, it's great to have you with us. Thank you for having me. really appreciate it. It's good to see you once more. Thank you, thank you. So, level set with us. What was it about the founders' vision of uh, patents that uh, was so central to the success of this country? You know,
4: our founders were so brilliant what, the rest of the world was run by, by aristocracies, right? And you, if, if you wanted to be an inventor, you had to be rich or a friend of the king, right? In America, our founders said, you know what? We should open this up to co- the common man, the common person. They work with their hands. They come up with ideas, and they can invent things that are really valuable. And, and everyone else scoffed at them, but what they created all the way back in 1790, the Patent Act of 1790 was the third ever act of Congress under George Washington. <clears throat> it even described inventors as he, she, or they, giving women all the rights as, of, of men when it came to patents and copyright. It's, uh, it's amazing. And of course, it, it helped America. It's in, in the
0: Constitution itself. It's directly
4: it, right? in the Constitution. This is quite interesting. The word right, as in someone's right to something, um, is only directly in the Constitution with respect to patents and copyright, you know, a- authors. Wow. Um, the Bill of Rights came later. So our founders saw this as, as critical to this country, and it was, and, it, and they were right, and it helped America become a world power much faster than normal. It helped America become economically successful much faster to stay ahead of our adversaries. Oh, that's a key thing. And uh, it made America so different than the rest of the world. I mean, this is part of the American dream, you know? So-
0: No wonder that those adversaries were very keen, or competitors if you will, but I think adversaries like China were in the mix, communist China. To the extent that they saw this as a very critical element of the success of this country, what did they do to try to take down? The US
4: system. You know, it's quite interesting. Um, so just for your, your viewers, used to be, if you had a patent infringement battle, it took place in a real court, right, with a judge, with a jury, with a lot of due process, it was fair. A jury um, of
0: your peers. A
4: jury of your peers. Man, that's, that's the Seventh Amendment to the Constitution. That's important. You're, you're, you have to have a—that's a very American thing, too. It is. Um, <clears throat> so what was created—and again, this was through the lobbying—big tech lobbyists, basically, about 10 years ago. Uh, but, of course, we know there's a China connection because big tech wants to be in China, and, and who knows what, what you know, behind-the-scenes negotiations were taking place. But what the lobbying created was a new administrative court where now most patent battles end up where you don't have a jury, you don't have a real judge, and 84 percent of the time, the patent in question gets invalidated, 84 percent of the time. And these are only on the most valuable patents. Why would it be? so disproportionately high? Well, first of all, it was, huh, you, oh, you'll love this. You probably already know this, but your viewers don't. <clears throat> so Google gets a law passed. Um, it, it's going to be up to the director of our patent office to set up this court, because it's going to be run by the patent office. Next thing you know, the person appointed as director of our patent office is the former head of patent strategy at Google. And her name is Michelle Lee. So she was there to hire the judges to make the rules, and of course it became a killing machine. In fact, a former chief judge uh, referred to it as a killing field for patent rights. And it is. And it's only the most valuable inventions. And it's not just tech, it's any valuable invention in any area. There will be a large entity or more than one who know they can use the broken patent system against the little guy. And you know what? Our patent system was made for the little guy, and it's the little guy, the independent Person who is such a key to innovation in America, at least has been in historically. Yes. And so, so the answer, one answer is to make it so that the little guy and the patent holder cannot be dragged into this unfair court, because it is very unfair. Let me tell you, we don't have time to discuss it in detail, but it, I could I could make you totally understand why it's so unfair. But well, um, The point is what it does. What it, it does. It essentially obvious.
0: makes that small innovator you know, uh, essentially condemned to have the fruits of his innovation and genius stolen.
4: And it's correct. And it's not just tech. I have examples of life-saving medical inventions, toys that happen to go viral. Uh, It it doesn't matter. It runs the gamut of just valuable inventions because you can invent something valuable in any area. So
0: we're going to run out of time before we run out of things to talk about (laughs) quickly. Uh, you're talking about reform right or restoration restoration, really, restoration right of the patent system back to its founding right uh, What is involved in doing that and what are the impediments that have to be overcome and how can people like our audience, you
4: okay. Well, we are absolutely 100% in this fight and committed to pulling it off. Now realize it is our group. Now we have 80,000 members, so we, we have a lot of people. We don't have a lot of money. Big tech has all the money. But we fight many with- Many of them inventors. Yeah. We fight with the truth. We fight with what, what has mattered and matters to this country with logic. And we fight with constituents who are willing to call their U.S. reps and senators and say, "Hey." This is wrong, and that's what we need most. We need people who care about this to be part of this movement, because we have a couple of bills that we're expecting to be able to introduce within a few weeks uh, that will fix the problem to some degree. And maybe we may have to have additional bills as well. But the point is, this is a giant first step. We will need it's a tremendous amount of support. Change the trajectory. Yeah. And and so usinvestors.org is a place people can find it's, it's out more about all of this. usinventor.org. Go there. See what we're doing, sign our inventor rights resolution, because that makes you part of the team. It also let, lets us know where you are so we can let you know if we're, if we need you to be part of a, an effort with your representative, right? And where can they go to find uh, Innovation Race? Ah, so the movie, movie, the movie is InnovationRacemovie.com, and a fabulous movie that really talks about the China situation. By the way, new information since that movie is that. China is now leading in 37 of 44 crucial technologies globally. Wow. What can possibly go wrong? Randy, thank you so much for what you're doing. Thank you for joining us. Uh, I think this is now an Emerald tradition. (laughs)
0: Catching up with you, we need to do more of it. Go to usinvestor.org. usinventor.org,
4: yep. Excuse me, usinventor.org. Be part of the team. Be right back.
0: Welcome back, and a special welcome to Brandon Weicker. He is uh, no stranger to these microphones. We had a chance to spend a full hour with him last week, and we were very grateful for that opportunity, as well as the chance to spend some time with him on the main stage of the Conservative Political Action Conference. Uh, and We've got a couple of clips from that that we'll be playing in the next couple of days, including uh, right after this one. But. Uh, Brandon is, among other things, the author of the book Over His Shoulder There, Biohacked, China's Race to Control Life. Um, We are watching them play um, a rather uh, stealthy game of trying to control life, including yours, uh, through a puppet they have put in place at the uh, uh, position of the director general of the World Health Organization. And the panel that Brandon and I were on, uh, led by our friend Bill Walton, uh, was about the World Health Organization, what it's up to, and what it means for all of us. And Brandon, I wanted to, first of all, thank you uh, for all you've been doing, including that very, very important uh, set of remarks you delivered at CPAC. Um, But also to kind of take stock on uh, two things, one, Um, The magnitude of this problem, as you see it now, uh, hurtling down the tracks towards us, and uh, takeaways on the uh, future fight over this World Health Organization global governance gambit um, coming out of the CPAC meeting.
2: Well, thank you for having me, and it was a joy to do the panel with you and to, to talk about this subject. As you know, sovereignty is basically the whole game. If they can take out our sovereignty, and I'm referring to the globalists, if they can take out our sovereignty... That's pretty much the end, not only of the United States as we know it, it's the end of Western civilization upon which property rights are built, and it's the end of the Westphalian nation state system that has really been the bedrock of international law and order uh, for centuries. Uh, And so this is the this is the game and they're playing for keeps and the World Health Organization, as I said on stage, is one of the many malefactors involved with eroding our national liberty and sovereignty. Uh, And it has been hijacked by the CCP. In fact, I I think I might have said this on the stage, I don't remember, but I know I've said it before. I actually think the globalists that populate the World Economic Forum, who populate the World Trade Organizations, the World Health Organization, etc., they're actually useful idiots and or fellow travelers for the imperialists of the Chinese Communist Party. And they're being used... Uh, to wage warfare upon us without actually fighting us. And the, the, they're using these bureaucratic tools to erode our sovereignty and to take over our private property and specifically control over our bodies.
0: Yeah. You know, Brendan, I, you're a serious student of history, uh, so this is no surprise to you, but it it's important, I think, to keep in mind, um, all of us for that matter, that uh, these elites uh in in our book the indictment we call it uh what the chinese excellent do book, by the way well thank you uh, the, the captured elites um the chinese call them their old friends uh, they think they're going to prosper yeah. under the new uh chinese dominated global order um, my guess is actually they're going to be the first taken out to the wall and yeah. shot yeah. Don't you?
2: Just, rem- yes, just remember, whenever either we're talking communist revolutions or Islamist revolutions, the first ones who are always thrown to the curb are the liberal, Democrat types, uh, lower, you know, that, that are, uh, you know, collaborating very often or looking the other way. Think of Lenin, you know, when he took power, it was with funding from capitalists in Russia. And they were the first ones he strung up. Um, and so that's, you know, that's the nature of these things. So they will be the first thrown out.
0: So Brandon, um, the CPAC uh, had as its theme in this year's program where globalism goes to die. And my sense is that that panel and a subsequent one with Dr. Robert Malone and and, uh, uh, a couple of others, uh, as well as uh, comments made on the margins uh, in several different programs, Steve Bannon's uh, not least, Um, There seems to me to have been quite a head of steam coming out of CPAC that, uh, as I put it, um, globalism isn't going to die of natural causes. It has to be killed. And the place to start, I believe, is with this World Health Organization effort to, as you say, uh, crush our sovereignty and impose a new dictator in Tedros Cabrasis, the director general, to uh, tell us when we have a public health emergency and what we have to do about it. Uh, Would you go that far and uh, what do we need to do more to the point to make it so?
2: Well, as a side note, the bannon speech, I think, was for me the highlight of the the, the day personally. Uh, second of all, I think that we need to completely get out of and I said this in my speech, get out of the World Health Organization and not stop there. I think Trump, in his first hundred days, it should make as a key tenet of his administration getting us out of all of these internationalist institutions because they 've been hijacked both by the globalists who in turn are in thrall to the Chinese Communist Party. So get out of all of them, starting with the WHO, because they're planning the next pandemic already. already Pandemic,
0: and and worse, as you know, Brandon, we talked about it. The fact is the powers that are envisioned to be authorized Mm -hmm. to be exercised by this guy Tedros are not confined to pandemics, this can be used for anything that he considers right. to be a public health emergency, climate change, reproductive Abortion. rights, yeah, yeah. immigration, yeah. gun violence. Uh, you it. know, one of the things that I took away from this and, and tried to frame in a way that might get people's attention is that we need to, as you say, quite rightly, depart the WHO. We have an opportunity, because the House of Representatives has actually done this, to Right. defund the WHO, Yes, but above all, it seems to me, we need to defang the WHO. And by that I mean we need to make sure that its various mechanisms that are envisioned right. in these amendments and, uh, and the new treaty to create a surveillance state that will govern, mm-hmm. you know, what we can do, where we can go, who we can interact with a censorship operation, Uh, and not least, you know, the proliferation of biological weapons, which goes to the point of your book. Uh, You don't want that to be a bigger problem than it is already. Um, Brandon Weikert, the time, as always, has flown by. We have to leave it at that for the moment. But uh, we uh, are going to have another hour with you, I think, soon to cover those books and much more. God bless you, my friend. Thank you so
2: much. God bless.
0: God bless the rest of you. I hope that you will come back next time and that until then, you will go forth and multiply.